0: Hello friends, thanks for tuning in. Welcome to this episode of the PhysioChange Education Interview Series. I've been looking forward to this trip very much. We're coming at you from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. In fact, I'm at Toronto Western Hospital right now. A very special guest with me today. He is an Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto, and he is also a neurologist here at Toronto Western Hospital. And it it's my great pleasure to introduce my special guest, Dr. Alfonso Fosano. Thank you so much. Thanks, Garth. It's good to see you again.
1: Yeah, it's good for me too, actually. We met a few months ago, right? Portland.
0: We did,
1: yeah. Yeah. i yeah. glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me, actually.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate this so much, because I know you're really busy. And um, just to give uh, the, the viewers and the listeners a little background, I attended the World Parkinson Congress back in uh, September 2016 in Portland, Oregon. Met a lot of great people, I learned so much. And um, I went to a presentation, uh, in fact the, the uh, module was about falls and there were three presenters. The first presenter was Dr. Fasano. And you know, in the business that I'm in as a fitness professional and also in the education side of the fitness world, teaching Parkinson's courses to trainers on how to work with uh, people who have Parkinson's disease, how to, you know, helping to manage falls better, improve mobility, stability. Dr. Fasano's presentation was um, really compelling. The information impacted me greatly. I learned a ton. I just learned so much but I think so I know today um, we have a special treat because I didn't expect this when I walked in, but he has a presentation for us about falls. So you know now this is the point where we start to go with the flow. We're gonna talk about falls. We know that uh, our number one concern with people with Parkinson's would be falls, and we want to avoid the first fall. Um, I'm gonna let you take it from there and uh, maybe take us through some of this, in, this presentation here.
1: Right, yeah, uh, absolutely. This is an interesting uh, topic for many reasons, uh, particularly because, as you were saying, many patients are afraid of falling, and, and this leads to another problem, this uh, lack of mobility, because some patients decide just to spend their time sitting on a chair, uh, because they know that any time they, they, they walk, they are at risk of falling. And and as as, as people can see from, from this slide, actually, uh, It's kind of uh, intuitive to know what frequent falls can cause. Uh, Immobilization is one of the uh, factors that I already mentioned, but you may also see injuries of course. Some patients have a fracture after a fall, and uh, especially at a certain age, uh, having a a fracture, being admitted to the hospital, really increases the risk of death. So, uh, one thing they always say to uh, my patients with Parkinson's is, uh, don't worry, Parkinson's won't kill you, it may obviously make your life difficult, uh, but to be honest, there are a few risks uh, of death, and falling is one of them. Uh, the other one would be uh, pneumonia, swallowing problems. So, and once again, this belongs to the actual um, axial motor uh, features of patients with Parkinson's, which is one of my main interests because, as we know, there are no many treatments for these uh, problems. So. Uh, Falling can be treated to some extent, but what we really need to understand is the pathophysiology of falling, which was the, the reason why I was invited that day in Portland when, when yeah. we met. And pathophysiology is a bit difficult uh, because it's not just a matter of balance. Well,
0: um, we know there's, there's a web here that goes on. I, I find it interesting, in fact, I really hadn't thought about it or heard of it until the, the day I saw you about the fear of falling. Can you tell us a little bit about y-
1: that? Yeah, fear of falling in, is another aspect that is, n- is not just relevant to patients with Parkinson's, but many elderly uh, subjects uh, may experience at some point fear of falling. Uh, and this is particularly relevant uh, for many other reasons when, when it comes to Parkinson's, because uh, as you will see later on with my presentation, sometimes patients with Parkinson's have too much fear of falling, and this is what we call the fall phobia, uh, and which is, um, an unrealistic uh, uh, um, fear of falling and and maybe just for because of one fall maybe for external causes like you know slippery floor uh, they decided their 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 life is done they cannot walk anymore because they don't want to experience the trauma that they have experienced uh, in the past and actually to some extent fear of falling or the fall phobia is closer to uh, the post-traumatic um, uh, stress disorder um, Uh, where where really people are are living over and over and again the same experience that they had when they had that maybe single fall. Um, On the other hand, uh, as you'll see later, some patients instead don't understand the risk of falling. And this is extremely dangerous because they have a risk of falling, problem with balance, but at the same time they don't know that. So they walk, they they have hundreds of falls uh, a month. And if I may say, this is actually uh, interesting with respect to what I uh, I wanted to say with this slide, um, because you were mentioning fear of falling. I was saying, you know, the awareness of having a risk of falling. Uh, I was saying before that falling is not just a matter of balance, because uh, it's really, here, it's not just a matter of motor functioning. It's not just a matter of being able to, to, you know, have the tandem position. And actually, many people with Parkinson's they are doing quite well, balance-wise. When we assess them during the the, the visit, uh, I'm sure all the people with Parkinson's may relate. We do the pull test, where we you know sure. we pull the back, uh, them backwards, and they do quite well. But then they go home and they fall. What, what is the cause of this? It's quite simple to explain. Balance is not just a motor function; it's also a cognitive function. And and, and this is the example I wanted to make with this slide. Uh, this is uh, um, the picture that a uh, patient of mine uh, kindly. Uh, agreed to show, I told her that I was going to, um, I I spoke with the wife of the patient, I don't know if people can see the patient, the patient is here, Mm -hmm. between the stone and the fence, Uh, and and the the wife was actually uh, happy to share with me this picture and she also emailed me, um, uh, describing a bit more what happened that day with the husband, uh, because she wanted me to really make people aware of the complexity related to falls, Uh, and I'm sure many people have a, a similar experience probably you, you too uh, when, when it happens to training of patients sure because in, in this particular case for instance the, the patient was doing something very dangerous and and he knew that he was going to fall the, the wife told him many times don't do that and instead he was in the garden working in a very awkward position and, uh, and yet he fell in between the stone and the, the stones and the fence mm-hmm. so um, once again cognition attention balance awareness of the problems so these are the the, the type of uh, uh factors not just balance then that every patient with partner should be aware of and also people training them because it's not just a matter of training their balance but also their attention yeah i'm glad you mentioned that
0: we uh, i'll just interject a little bit with my clientele and then, then in the workshops we teach we we attempt to train for better multitasking or dual tasking abilities by challenging them cognitively in various ways during focused movement. And actually, the results that we see from that are, are I mean, they vary, of course, depending upon the person and their stage and different factors. But it, it, there's something to
1: that that can be very helpful dual task training. Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to gonna you gonna something about dual task in a second. And let's see where we're going now with that. Uh, the second, uh, the third slide that I want to show today. Um, yeah, th- this is another important thing because you are mentioning that the patients are are afraid of falling. Uh, when I speak with uh, patients with a new diagnosis of Parkinson's, where they are particularly uh, doing well, they are in good conditions with maybe just a minimal tremor, and they may be doing this like this for years, for decades in some cases. Uh, uh, but. The, but yet they're still afraid that one day they'll end up on a wheelchair. That's the typical question that um, most patients will ask at the first time uh, when you meet them. Um, and uh, and then they lead this life with the fear of falling. This comes from, from from many studies showing that falling, particularly frequent falling, is a sort of a milestone in the, in the, in the progression of the disease. And this is what this paper showed. So that doesn't matter how many years of Parkinson's you have, at some point you're going to start falling, you're going to start having uh, hallucinations and cognitive problems and end up in a residential care. So these papers like this show that this milestone, the frequent falling, um, happens quite late, which is true, and, and, and my hope is that uh, for the pa- patient on today, there will be a better future Without these milestones, because we are obviously also working uh, from a research standpoint uh, on these topics. But what I also wanted to show with this slide is what this study that showed. This is a more recent study, and, and this is I, will, I, will, I want people just to focus on the darker, um, the darkest bars. So this, this one, yeah. Okay. So these are the. This is the percentage of patients with Parkinson's with no faults. And as you can see, this is never hundred. So even when patients, and obviously the different bars refer to the uh, different age groups. So first one being less than 50 years uh, old, and this would be more than eight years old. So obviously as the patient ages, not just because of Parkinson's progression, but just because the brain aging itself can contribute to falls, you see that the people with with um, common fall with frequent falls is higher 46 percent for instance, in this in this uh, mm-hmm. uh, bar meaning that there is a, still a 54 percent of patients with no falls but this is somehow known because we already talked about this here but the interesting part here is that even when they are very young and likely the disease is not that advanced that may be uh, kind of an early disease 87 percent only are not reporting uh, falls, meaning that there is a 13 percent of patients who's, who's already reporting one fall or more than one fall. So and, that's and, and uh, just to clarify, what is that
0: time period? In? Is it like per year or six months? Or the each? In this study? Yeah. Uh, is yeah. it just one fall total? Or yeah, total. Total,
1: total, total until the day, the day of the, the the questionnaire or the interview. Okay, got it. All right, and. So um, let's see. Okay, yeah, and and that's the other uh, important message I want to give you all today. Uh, Falling is an established problem. We talked a lot about falls. Uh, that's why during the conference they also decided to dedicate a whole session about, uh, to falls. Uh, but overall, the, the research in this field is quite young, and and uh, we haven't uh, still agreed on. Uh, number of definitions. For instance, we never know whether in studies we need to look back at the previous six months or the previous 12 months before we can really say whether the mission is a folder or not. So there, there are many, many aspects that there still need to be elucidated. Uh, but overall, the research is moving forward and, and this is the editorial uh, of, of um, uh, actually, this was a geographic paper, uh, on a geriatric journal, but in this editorial in 2004, uh, at this point they were talking about building the science of falls, uh, fall prevention, uh, because obviously we want to understand the fall pathophysiology, the fault causes, to understand how to prevent them and how to treat falls. Uh, and this is 2014. Today, in 2017, we have many more papers, many more uh, definitions, many more uh, conferences uh, having falls as a topic, and this is essentially uh, one of the hot topics uh, of uh, the, uh, our uh, field, the movement disorders field. Um, and, and I was mentioning the definitions. Uh, I mean, we don't, ne- we don't have to talk too much about these things. Um, it's obvious what a fall is. Uh, but there are a few things that people need to understand and to keep in mind, uh, even because education is a key factor here. So as a physician, I spend a lot of time with patients, educating them what we're talking about not just because it's patient's right to know what's going on, that's obviously uh, always the case, but also because if the patient knows what we're talking about next time when the patient sees me or another physician or another health practitioner, this person will already know what to say how to say, what is the term to use um, and, and to this respect, um, in this slide I'm saying we need to understand that there are intrinsic and extrinsic causes for falls. Now, okay. if you fall, let's say I have Parkinson's, and I fall because I decided to go skating, and I, I fall doing skating, which is obviously uh, a very, very uh, um, challenging motor uh, performance, this means something. Or if I fall because I haven't seen my little dog you know, passing by and I step over my dog, This is an extrinsic cause for falls, which is to some extent not really, really worrisome to me because it can happen, and anybody can fall. Uh, While instead, the intrinsic falls um, are the more important ones. Intrinsic falls are the falls caused by uh, intrinsic factors. Patients' poor uh, balance, patients' poor judgment. And these are the falls that we need to be focused on, and these are the ones that we probably need to uh, rehabilitate and treat. Doesn't mean that we don't need to uh, uh, take into consideration the extrinsic causes. And actually, I don't know if you uh, do this sometimes with, with your clients, but it's an important thing to do also uh, to assess their environment, to go home and to see oh, that rug is not really well placed, or this little uh, you know table over there is not uh, uh, good. And I think, unfortunately, uh, I need to mention are the the um, uh, grandchildren, you know, they they're running <laughs> over, and I've seen patients falling because of the grandchildren standing sure, over right. them. So you know, these are the kind of uh, extrinsic factors that need to be acknowledged uh, because this can prevent falls. So I don't know if you have any, well, any question about this. Actually,
0: I'm really so. If you don't mind, I'm going to interject. Of course. Um, so at my personal training company and wh- where I live in Syracuse, we actually do at-home training only. So we go to their homes and we get to see the environment, and help to coordinate things. Yeah, that's very. very um, I you know and actually I'll just add on to that, piggyback to that is uh, one of my assessments that I do with every client, um, with Parkinsons especially though, is to take take a take me through your day. You know what's your first challenge for some people it's rolling over in bed, and the second challenge may be getting out of bed or maybe it's they get along fine but there's something in their house they need to navigate or there's a task they try to do so maybe we can set it up so it's easier to do or we train to do it you know we try to train for functional life um, but i really i'm glad you brought that up because i'm not sure i would have thought about it because i just do it is seeing the home environment um that's very helpful
1: oh yeah absolutely and actually this brings us to concept that is um, kind of fashion, now. Uh, it's fancy uh, to talk about, I don't know if you heard about this term, personalized medicine. So everyone has different type of medications, different type of surgical intervention, different profile in terms of patients' uh, features. Uh, but this personalization of uh, the treatment, which is something obvious in my opinion, I mean, now it's fancy, but I think everybody should be doing this can apply, like you were saying, also to other ways to help people, rehab, physical exercise, intervention at home. So doing the um, personalization of uh, the assessment and personalization of the type of strategies is really key because, uh, as you were mentioning, rolling over bed may be something quite common as a problem to, uh, for patients. But maybe a uh, given patient has a particular difficulties in. I don't know, preparing breakfast, and then and this is where you in, in intervene. This mm-hmm. is, sure. I, I would call it personalized training, you know, that, yeah. uh, you, know you may use the term if you, <laughs> you <must>. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, it, it is highly individual too, yeah. just
0: based on what they can and can't do, Yeah, what's difficult, yeah. yeah.
1: Good, good. Okay, good. so, and, and this is um, uh, just to um, explain why definitions are important. Uh, I, I gave you already a few hints before. Uh, so this is um, a study looking at a medication called droxidopa. This is a medication that helps blood pressure, so many people with Parkinson's disease have no blood pressure. And actually the, the, the situation is a, is a bit more complicated than that because they usually have normal pressure or even high blood pressure when they lie down or when they sit. And as soon as they stand up, their blood pressure drops. And, and this is a very common cause of imbalance and, and force. Sure. But in this case, the intervention is completely different. There is no rehab for this. I mean, maybe the only rehab would be teaching them to squat or, or to, to, to stand up slowly. Uh, but this is just to explain that falls can be caused by other causes that, don't, uh, that they need to be uh, considered. Um, and, and this is why in this study about this medication that helps the blood pressure, uh, blood pressure drop, uh, one of the, the endpoints um, was the number of falls. And they actually found out that when the medication is used, the number of falls reduces. But it reduces because we are helping the blood pressure. These are probably falls caused by the drop of blood pressure. It doesn't mean that droxedopa, droxedopa would be helpful in any patient with falls. And once again, we need to personalize our approach. And moving forward with other definition, uh, another important one is near fall. Mm. Obviously, yeah. near fall is uh, something that can eventually lead to a fall but it doesn't because the patient is able to find a strategy. A typical one would be holding on to something or on a person that is uh, uh, nearby. So uh, and near falls are also very important to assess because these are telling us that this patient, this subject, is at risk for real falls and, and uh, another important uh, uh, consideration here is uh, comes from this study. Uh, so this is another drug study um, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, fold ha, uh, folding has to be treated with medications, uh, but this is another way to look at the problem. Uh, is another way to understand what's out there, what's published. So this is a medication, Donepezil, used to treat uh, cognitive problems. So this is a medication uh, officially indicated for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, however, this medication has used in Parkinson's with uh, patients with cognitive problems, but also in patients with Parkinson's without cognitive problems and falling. And this is an interesting study They showed that if you use donapazil, you reduce the number of falls. And this is shown here by this this um, uh, figure here. These are the people on placebo, and then the same subject is allocated to donapazil, and you see that some patients have a drastic drop of the number of falls per day. Uh, why is this possible? Because donepezil is a medication that enhances attention, enhances uh, cognition, uh, and you know, going back to what we were discussing before, it makes sense then that if you're using something that helps cognition, you may help the number of falls. And remember, I was saying near falls before, right? So when you look at the table uh, publishing this publication, and you look at the number of near falls that these subjects are having. Regardless of, of uh, their um, allocation to placebo or donepidzib, the number of near falls is the same. So, when they use placebo, you have a reduction of falls, but not a reduction of near falls. This means that, uh, at least in my opinion, that this medication doesn't help balance because they are still unsteady at the same uh, way and the same times even more uh, but they don't end up on the floor because since they are more focused they use more attention because of the medication they find a strategy to 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 avoid the fall thinking faster absolutely yeah and and this is why I always say balance is a matter of strategy balance is another strategic function of our brain that's why it's linked with another function that probably you're uh, you're familiar with and even uh, our listeners uh, that is called executive function, our ability to plan. So in the last slide the word recovery was in there
0: and what's interesting is I have some clients who basically they tell me we're tr- we are training for fall recovery three times a week with you. we were recovering from falls repeatedly with me in a session and actually this actually translates to in uh, their functional life when they're out and they're walking and they're moving and they tend to uh, where they may have fallen, they don't fall because they developed a fall strategy now. Mm-hmm. So, I like this um, fall recovery training That's what we call it. It's just, it's. Uh, I think it's appropriate too because they're developing
1: skills to be able to break that fall faster, come up with an instant strategy. It always becomes a habit. Yeah, it's reaction time. Mm-hmm. Reaction habit time. is another uh, interesting aspect and unfortunately uh, automaticity is one of the, um, the problem uh, one of the function that um, uh, is impaired in of disease patients. Uh, the example I always um, make when it comes to explaining what automatic behaviors are um, is uh, driving. So any 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 of us, when, when we start driving a, a car, we were very very focused on what we were doing. We were thinking each action, um, um, and then at some point, driving became became automatic to the point that we now can uh, we can now talk, you know. Uh, listen to music maybe sing with the radio while we are driving and uh, think completely of de- uh, being completely uh unaware of our actions although we are you know still doing a lot of motor actions uh, obviously so this function the, the function that brings some motor behavior from being uh, thought to to become automatic is impaired in parkinson's mm-hmm. a- and this is when training um, uh, uh, m- has to be repeated so repetition really really helps because they don't retain people with Parkinson's tend not to to retain the information gathered so it's very difficult to induce a new habit with repetition and repetition this may happen Uh, it might not so this is why um, uh, also in terms of guidelines sometimes it's very difficult to say okay you need to do physical therapy or exercise uh, uh, you know once a month or a cycle of a month every year. This is very individual, once again. And, sure. But at the end of the day, the, the, the real way to do rehab and exercise is really uh, continuous. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really a matter of being trained on a weekly basis, also to learn how to do the exercise, which, which is probably something you, you do with your your client, um, uh, because uh, of this problem with retaining the, the new information gathered uh, with, with the training. Sure. Sure. Okay, and uh, so and, and and this is the the last thing I want to say in terms of definitions. Uh, we have now an understanding of uh, what a faller is. Uh, when there is more than two falls during the six or twelve months, as I was saying before, it's still it's still blurry. This this type, uh, this part of the definition. But another important construct is the concept of the idiopathic fallers. There are people out there that, for no reason or well, apparently no reason, they, they, they fall. And, and, sure. and we don't know what they have. Well, we have now an idea what they have, but what is interesting uh, with respect to Parkinson's is to, to notice that uh, very recently, uh, 2016, so last year, there was this publication, um, I won't go over the method, but they, they, they were able to analyze thousands of charts of patients with uh, Parkinson's, and they recognized that actually patients with falls and then patient with Parkinson. And they were able to recognize that the risk of folding increases ten years before the disease of Parkinson starts. So and, and now we put this together with what we were saying before. Mm-hmm. So we came with the idea that folding is something that only happens at the very end of the disease or towards the end of the disease. Then I say, you know, look, even in the early stages of the disease there are faults. And now we're even saying that faults can be the first symptoms of Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. And this is really emphasizing now that every person even at this stage, at this stage there is no sign of Parkinson's, so no, no medication obviously to try, nothing, but it's really a key to be uh, in good shape and to exercise, even when you have no disease, and uh, obviously this is something I tell myself all the day, all the time and every day, but it's not, uh, you know, we, we know doctor can be kind of lazy, but in terms of, uh, of health, uh, general health and fitness, the more you exercise the better you'll be, even when you get a disease. Sure, sure. Yeah, Actually, you, there was a statistic that you mentioned in Portland,
0: um, and I'm not sure I remember the exact number. That, I want to say it was like, people with Parkinson's who exercise have a blank percentage, 69% chance of less of falling, or
1: um, is there a percentage that's correlated with that? I don't don't recall a like given number right now, but okay. it's it's... It's known. I mean, I know it is. Yeah, be, yeah. Be, 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 because the I may have the, heard that in another presentation actually, yeah. it's possible. Yeah. Well, but, but I don't yeah. remember me saying that because my, my topic was a bit different than sure. uh, the, the how to read to, to prevent. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's related to what we, we we're saying. And you're right, number aside, uh, the, 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 the more the person, the subject, uh, uh, exercise, exercises, the, the higher the chance mm-hmm. that this person will have a longer life even better memory that's mm-hmm. known, it, it's well known that uh, the more a person walks the better would be the memory even later in life and, and if the person unfortunately develops a disease you're, you're still gaining something from, from your experience, uh, from, from, your, from your previous life I would say. Uh, so the, the, the key here is really to, to emphasize even at the educational level at, in school, on TVs. You know how sure. important it is not to spend time in front of a, a device like an iPad or, or a smartwatch or a smartphone or in front of a video game, but rather go out and, and, and play and, and move and run. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, this is something that I'm sure you have seen. Um, more often uh, as the time goes by because uh, there, there are no more kids on the streets. I mean, this is now another topic, but there was a time where everybody was out there playing in the yeah. playground. Now it's everybody inside, at home, on the on the internet, and no, there's no exercise anymore, not even for fun. Yeah. And so this is just a very busy slide showing all the risk factors uh, known, uh, the known risk factors when it comes to falls in Parkinson's, but these are generic. This is what I I, I, I split this table. This table is taken from a publication, another recent publication, looking at the known risk factors for falls. And I wanted to divide generic risk factors from specific risk factors. This is the list of generic risk factors, old age, um, Medic, other medical condition, p- poor vision. For instance, sometimes patients with Parkinsons ask me whether they can, they need to go for cataract surgery. And the answer is always yes. Please do as soon as possible because we know that anything plays a role. So if you have a little bit of, of visual problems or hearing problems, a- anything, vestibular problems, can contribute to falls. And it's been studied that uh, if you actually do cataract surgery, your falls risk reduces. Oh. and there are many, many well, that other makes examples, sense, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. It better, it's better all together, yeah, right, yeah, Okay. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to specific risk factors, uh, um, can
0: I interrupt for one second? For sure. And I'm so sorry. On the last slide, the depression was right here. Yeah. And you mentioned something in Portland about depression being a cause for falls. Right. And then
1: falls yeah. cause depression. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. Absolutely. I didn't it it go very with, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Good memory. Okay. I didn't go through that uh, specifically now because I have another slide. Okay. Then sure. I, because uh, depression and falls have a. Uh, uh, they don't have a univocal relationship. Uh, there, there are many layers that we need to discuss okay, when it comes right. to depression. We'll talk about this later. So as for the specific factors, there are many others uh, that specifically relate uh, to Parkinson's disease. And one is, uh, for sure, freezing of gait. Uh, I'm, I'm sure people are familiar with the, with the idea of what freezing of gait is, is when you feel that your feet are stuck on the floor and you cannot really initiate any step. And this is uh, uh, an important contribution to falls for for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, because usually this is sudden, so the person doesn't really uh, it's not aware that the freezing episode is going to start, and so the the person is is, uh, is surprised by the freezing episode itself, and, and so the person is, is moving, is moving forward then and then all of a sudden your feet get stuck on the floor and your body is still uh, going forward and this is why you, you, you fall typically forward in these cases. And, and um, so and, and the other reason why fo- freezing of gait is a risk factor for, for falls is because usually people with freezing of gait have poor balance because the, the part of the brain involved in gait and balance are for obvious reason connected. So you know that when there's freezing there's also problem with balance sometimes. And then there are many other factors, dyskinesias, you know, if you have a lot of perturbation of your, of your body because of medications, uh, you may have uh, more uh, body's weight and the chance to have uh, perturbation and then, then to have a, a fold is higher and there are many others. Postural abnormalities, come the the, sure. the the the, the uh, forward uh, flexion of the trunk is another risk factor for mechanical reasons. There are many others. Pisa Tower Syndrome is when the patient leans to, towards one side, oh, so, so another risk that, factor. Right. Yeah. And it's called Pisa Tower syndrome, yeah. that's why it's yeah. kind of a. Com- well, I'm the right person to talk about it I'm being Italian, but uh, <laughs> uh, but but you know there are many others uh, risk factors specifically related to, to Parkinson's, and this is what you were saying before. So, and, and this is the the, the depression oh, the issue okay. with depression. Yeah, sure. So, um, what what Carl was alluding to is the fact that it's known that depression is a risk factors for for uh, falling. Uh, and this is difficult because when you do this kind of uh, studies, you, you, what you do is basically comparing people who fall with people with, who, who don't fall, and then you end up seeing that uh, people with falls have more depression. Okay, But then you don't know whether depression is causing the falls, or actually falling is causing depression, and, and this is the, you know, it's a sort of yeah. an egg and chicken situation. Uh, but to make things even more complicated is the fact that usually when you have depression, unfortunately you end up with a prescription, uh, and uh, yeah, people, people think that doctors like prescribing medication and although I, I mentioned myself medications uh, before, I, I want to, to really make sure that people understand that doctors don't like medications. We don't have many other solutions sometimes other than, that, other than prescribing medications. So depression, especially at a given age, um, in a given, given circumstances, cannot be treated with psychotherapy or other, other intervention. You really need to use medications. Why? Because, for instance, depression in Parkinson's has a, um, biochemical reasons. The lack of dopamine, the lack of serotonin in the brain, on its own, causes causes depression. Mm-hmm. So, in these patients, you in- introduce medications, and unfortunately, many medications that we use have as a side effect, increasing the risk, uh, r- risk of falling. Uh, the most commonly ones are uh, sleeping pills, and we should really get rid of sleeping pills if possible because all these medications, particularly benzodiazepine, are numbing the the attention, the the Mm -hmm. focusing of these patients. That's why they fall more. And the same will apply to many other medications, including antidepressants. So see, depression can lead to a prescription of a medication that increases fall risk. A fall can induce depression. Depression maybe is is what we call an endophenotype, a characteristic of people with falling. But we don't know this yet because there are these confounding that are shown here and these are other examples that we don't really need to to, uh, discuss in depth. Uh, Maybe one I want to mention is joint disorders, Um, arthritis. It's very common in the old population and is known to be a risk factor of falling. Uh, So this belongs to the generic risk factors for falls. But people with, with, let's say, knee problems, sometimes they use a key and i'm sure um, many of the people that you met uh, so far asked you whether they can use a cane or a tripod or something like that and, and it's known that these are actually increasing the risk of falling uh, especially when they are not the proper ones. so the the, the only that I would recommend at this point is a walker, a proper walker, rather than, than okay. a cane. I know a cane is, may look fancier, can you know p- the person may look more elegant, sure. but, but it can be another obstacle, another extrinsic factors that we mentioned before that can, can cause it's problems. It would be nice to have support on both sides. Yeah, yeah. yeah. especially when it comes to forward-forward. Right, okay. right.
0: I have a question. So, when I think about depression, I think about posture. and. People With depression, aren't usually all upright like this, they tend to be a little more forward. Mm-hmm. Is that another
1: contributor? Would you say because depression can uh, it's hard to tell because uh, you are now talking about the body language basically? Uh, and it's hard to tell in this case because people with Parkinson's, even without depression, they tend to have this stooped posture, they, yeah. So, th- th- this is and, and this for sure contributes to the perturbation to the mechanical perturbation. This sure. helps their, their falling forward for sure, and um, so. I don't have a, an answer that I think is very difficult from a scientific standpoint to really make a connection between depression and the posture because it's already uh, impaired uh, regardless it of it is. Yeah.
0: yeah. Another thing I noticed with uh, people with Parkinson's who are in that forward posture is that when we train, you know, we also do big movements. We're trying to do get a strong costal thoracic mobilization, trunk, big movements in the trunk, trying to get to upright posture. However, seems like many of them have adjusted to this as being their center of gravity, so when you get them like this, they have a tendency to go back. So we have to go really slow with this. We can't just put them like this
1: in an hour, you know. This has been, this has been studied, um, and uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, to some extent, the stoop posture seems to be a compensatory mechanism. Because they move the center of the body mass a bit more forward which means that the projection of this point which is more or less here the body the core is stay the projection on the floor stays within the the base of support so this is physics now but, but anyways the point is a little bit of stooped posture probably helps uh, the balance problems that these people have and and you're absolutely right when you train too fast or when you teach them to be too s- up straight they, then, then you see what's the real balance problem of your partner that is backwards falling. Yeah. And backwards falling is, uh, is something we uh, treat with, with very, very, uh, dif- it's very difficult to treat, I mean, because when it comes to forward falling, we always think of freezing, and freezing to some extent can be, freezing of gait can be improved, mm-hmm. or festination, which is when they walk fast and fast, uh, faster and faster and then they can only really stop. Uh, eventually they they, they they land on the floor because they have no other way to, to stop. Freezing of gait is somehow related, mm-hmm. and they all fall forward. Mm-hmm. And the backwards falling is a very, very um, difficult one to treat. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, and I want to uh, show you a uh, few examples of patients falling. The example of falling forward is an example of a, how an extrinsic factors can lead to falls. Mm, with a yeah, dog, right? And this is another uh, situation where the subject is engaged in something else, so the attention is obviously on something uh, unrelated to the mobility. Uh, in this, mo- in this uh, case, the gentleman is trying to catch the ball, and then is is walking, and then is falling again. So. All these videos that are taken from, from uh, the, the video camera system of um, some nursing home, this is a very interesting way of looking at falls because obviously you cannot ask the patient to fall sure. in, the, in the clinic room. Uh, but this is a way to explore what happens when these people fall. And, and the, what you've seen in these videos all share um, a couple of features. First of all, they are walking. If you want to fall, you need to walk. If you're on a chair, on a wheelchair, lying down, you won't fall. And this is related to the fear of folding problem we were talking about before. The other thing that is in common in these cases is that they are all engaged in doing something else. They are you know, um, walking the dog, playing with, uh, with the ball, or trying to to sit on a chair. So, key points always the same. Walking, freezing, uh, attention. And another important one is turning. Turning is extremely difficult. Mm, yeah. and, and and most of these people fold while turning for, for a number of uh, reasons. First of all turning is a trigger for freezing of gait. So even people with no freezing of gait, we just need to ask them to turn and then you'll see some freezing. Um, and, and the other thing is that when you turn the uh, remember before I mentioned body uh, mass and the projection on the body uh, the yep. support base, mm-hmm. uh, when you turn you basically narrow down this piece of support and the, the chance that the, 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 the projection of your body, the center of your body mass goes behind this limit. Uh, becomes higher and so the the, the, the reason to have that the chance of a perturbation that brings you on the ground is much higher when you have a narrow base of support
0: So the laws of physics there just kind of oh, increase yeah. the odds for falling because of the narrow
1: a less base of support Right, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. And this is why uh, when you feel unsteady and this is a common experience when you're walking on ice the first thing you do is uh, spread your uh, your your hand out this way. Sure. So wait you, uh, your 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 base support, the projection becomes wider, and you walk with your wide base, with with the, with the feet spread apart, mm-hmm. uh, and and maybe with shorter steps. So these are common strategy, strategies that our central nervous system puts in place anytime there is a risk of falling. But sometimes we don't know that we're at risk of falling, like mm-hmm. in part of patients. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's going on here? Oops. Let's see, okay, there was Okay, so, well, this is what happens anytime we have a perturbation. Uh, and probably to explain this, um, I think we, we can stand up just for a bit, Okay, sure. just to make it be more interactive. So you face the, the world there, and this is something that uh, our um, uh, uh, listeners probably have seen many times. So the, 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 the physicians that test the balance doing this, this mm-hmm. is the pool test, right? Mm-hmm. So now you're a well-trained person, I do the pool test, and what you're doing at this moment is fixing your ankle, so your ankle is very stiff, right. and you're using the, the center of your body as a, uh, as a um, sort of, let uh, you say, flexible uh, um, uh, body part that is uh, you know taking care of the perturbation and you are dissipating the perturbation along your body but mm-hmm. if I do this you have no other way oh, than yeah. stepping backwards so right, what right, you think right. is right. exactly the opposite of what you're doing before instead yeah. instead of Fixing the ankle and, and having it. your trunk f- uh, flexible, mm-hmm. you are doing the opposite. You are, uh, you do, you forget about it. You initially tried. I don't mm-hmm. know if you realize. You try to to keep your balance, but then sure. you realize no, there's no way of doing this. Mm-hmm. And then you change completely strategy, and it's a matter of milliseconds. Mm-hmm. And, and then you release your ankle, so your ankle wasn't fixed anymore because mm-hmm. you actually stepped backward. Yeah, that actually uh, felt kind of weird. It's like. I didn't even think about it. Yeah, you don't, you don't think I about, about think it. I do not think about it. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. and this is what this um, uh, graph means. So, any there's a, a, a perturbation, so first of all, there's a condition, uh, a situation that is called anticipatory postural adjustment. If you know that I'm going to pull you backwards, you're already doing something. You're already preparing yourself. Uh, uh, obviously, if you don't know that something is happening, which happens most of the time when people are falling because it happens in the everyday life, you don't do this. But anyways, forget. let's forget about the postural adjustments that are prior to the perturbation. If the perturbation is mold, you have an ankle strategy. So you're working with your flexibility of the trunk of the body. Mm-hmm. If this is not working because you realize that this, you, you will be on the floor soon, then you move on and you do the stepping strategy. And this is the other link between posture and uh, balance and walking. So we use our ability to walk. To recover from 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 perturbation that's why yeah. they are tight and and now let's assume i gave you a really hard pull and and you could not really really manage to mm-hmm. to, to, to to you know to stand so you have rescue reaction so you use your arms yeah. get, you grab on something mm-hmm. and this is where the near fall comes yeah. into the picture and and then even if if and when this doesn't work the rescue reaction is not working so you don't Grasp anything, you know, you're lost. You're about to end up on the floor. Then you have protective hard reaction. So typically, uh, putting arms down, or you, you're trying to lessen the impact of, of the fall. Sure. And all of this is extremely complex. And this is the beautiful machine that is our brain that do that does all of this in milliseconds. That's yeah, it is. And this is why it's very difficult to treat balance, and it's very easy that uh, anytime there is a neurological problem, one of the first things that uh, gets impaired is balance because there are a lot of uh, um, uh, different uh, body parts, parts of the brain, and functions of the brain that are all together trying to keep our position straight. And this is what this is basically saying.
0: Oh, okay. I can tell you. I use protective arms because <laughs> anyone who knows me, they know I like to run. I really like trail and mountain running. So when I travel and I'm in trails, mountains, but you know, there's that tree root that gets you once in a while. And you don't see it, boom, down.
1: You know. And then you realize that you yeah. missed it. Yeah. And blood and whatever. Yeah, yeah. So. And, and and one of the point I'm gonna uh, make in a second is, uh, is uh, and this has been um, found in, in some studies, is that anytime you have someone who falls quite often. But the person has injuries on the wrist, typically it's a fracture, or you know uh, some sort of a trauma, bruises on the arm, like you were saying. It's a it's a good sign. Uh, it means that the body is. I mean, you're falling. It's not good, but at least the body is able to have rescue reaction or protective okay. arm reaction. Instead, if you fall like a log and no and with no reaction whatsoever, and. and this is a very bad sign, and this is usually what leads to femur fractures or severe fractures. I never thought about that.
0: It's it's been as started. far as if I see, if I get a new client and I see, or even existing ones, I only have two fallers right now. So, there is but if st- I wish to see that they're banged up, but they you can tell they're breaking the fall or yeah. recovering. So that's, they are
1: fast, at least. Yeah, uh, that's good. One part of the the, the balance system is not working well, but the other one it, it is. Okay. And um, it's been studied also in people without Parkinson's. Uh, falling is a big problem also at the health uh, um, economy level, um, societal level. Um, so there are many research on people, elderly patients with falls, not necessarily with Parkinson's. And in one of these studies, has been shown that uh, if the person has a single femur fracture, as uh, has a worse outcome with respect to a person with a femur and a wrist fracture at the same time. So in the oh, long term right. that makes yeah, sense. if you have two fractures it's better than one. Which is well, it totally to it. makes sense because yeah. at least you were trying to do something when yeah. you broke this. Yeah. Oh, okay. So and that's the key question now. The, will my patient fall? And this is what every neurologist when assess the patient uh, is trying to answer, not just neurologists also also the other all the other people involved in the diagnosis and, and assessment of these patients. And and this is an extremely difficult um, question to answer. Uh, for a number of reasons that I'm going to explain in a second. So, this is a a long table, but anyways, this comes from another recent study looking at people with falls and Parkinson's, and they found that the highest predictors, the strongest predictors of falls, is an history of falls, which doesn't make too much sense. So, basically, when you have someone in your office who never fell, it's very difficult for anybody to say, you have this risk of falling in the next six months. Instead, if this person fell only once, you know that this person is at risk of falling. So that's the paradox, because sometimes even a single fall can cause a lot of troubles. Sure. So you don't even want that single fall. But unfortunately, until you see that single fall, it's very difficult to you to, to pick, uh wherever uh, whoever patient is really at risk of falling. And, and this, is, uh, uh, this is called ROC, ROC curve. And this is a very, very specific thing. that I don't think uh, we need to go too much in details, but uh, this is to explain that anytime this is, well, this is a, a curve that tells us how sensitive, how accurate is a test. So the closer it is to the, the, the uh, diagonal line, the worse it is. The best test, in this case predicting a fall, is the test that has a line that goes up here because it's both sensitive and specific. Oh, okay. So And we, what we do is measuring this area. The bigger this area, the more accurate the test is. Mm-hmm. And this shows you that the UPDRS, UPDRS is the number of items and scores that we give to patients where we assess them in the um, visit room. Uh, you have seen this, the fingertips, you know, yeah. the rigidity, pull test is part of UPDRS. And we know that UPDRS is very poor when it comes to predicting falls many reasons i mentioned one before because the patient knows that you're doing the pool test so it's not real life uh, that's why they can even do a very very uh, good recovery and then they go home and they fall uh, the, the, the 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 darker line instead is is one of the tests that we use to assess balance and a right. more specific right. test and, and and indeed it shows a better um, uh, performance although still not ideal because as you know it's not going up there so and I have a couple of more slides about this. You wanna uh, you wanna ask something? Um, I was looking at the mini best test. Yeah, so that's this is con- the mini best. That's yeah. a uh,
0: condensed version of the best test.
1: Right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just one. It's, it's a very good one. It's yes. one of the tests we use to to measure balance. And actually, not familiar with the whole best test. It's longer, really and that's why really they better. end up doing yeah. the mini best. Yeah. Uh, uh, interesting. Are these force plates you use for this? Yeah, this is gait analysis. We. Well, one of my interests is gait analysis, but uh, I wanted to show this graph, um, this graph here in the video there, because this is what happens. This is the same subject. Uh, This is a smooth walking on the the left. It's a normal gait because the patient is asked to walk and he's doing a good job. Here, the same patient asked to walk and and count backwards aloud. Dual tasks. You were talking about dual tasks before. And you see that the gait becomes very, very variable and irregular. There are stops, freezings, and and, and this is one of the reasons why people with Parkinson's have an increased risk uh, for falls that is not captured by our assessment, because they are very focused during the the visit. And actually, uh, sometimes you see these situations where the the person, uh, uh, is doing quite well, and the partner is kind of pissed off. Say, oh, come on, at home you're doing so bad, and you come here and you do well. And you know, I always make the same joke. Okay, you, you should move in, or she should move in and stay with us, and she'll be fine. The reason is is, is because the person at this moment, during the clinic visit, that half an hour, that with that hour with the doctor, there's nothing in, with respect to the entire life they're spending at home with the wife or the husband, uh, is doing particularly well because it's performing, is showing off. Uh, so, there are other reasons why people with Parkinson's uh, are false and it's difficult to, to predict their falls. And this is something that we mentioned before, the fall phobia, when people are so afraid of falling that they don't, they don't move, and they, they are overestimating the risk of falls. And this is the fall phobia. On the other end of the same spectrum, there is the reckless gait. I was mentioning before, there are people who fall and they are not aware of the risk of falling. So this is a spectrum, and everybody is different, and every patient falls in a different falls in a different um, point of this spectrum. The ideal patient should be here, with a good understanding of their capabilities, and, and, and meaning that uh, you will be doing something, you will be working, you won't give up, but at the same time you won't do something dangerous. And actually, one of, if I may say, one of your uh, tasks when you are dealing with, with your clients. Would be really to assess their capabilities uh, of understanding their uh, limitations and also their um, uh, potentials, and to promote them, to promote the the, the, the potentials, and at the same time um, trying to uh, minimize whenever it's possible the, their excessive risk, uh, their excessive fear of falling. Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise they don't move much. What would you use for assessment for? Their awareness of risk of fall. Like, how, do, how do you handle yeah. that? How do good work question. Out? Yeah, there is a scale that is called ABC, which gives us the confidence that the patient has. Oh. And it's okay. a it's a it's a good scale in other fields, not in Parkinson's because of this impairment, uh, but it's a good starting point. You it's, know the confidence. It's a scale that goes from zero to one hundred, and there are different tasks. You ask basically standardized tasks? Yeah yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's actually a questionnaire sort of. So you say how confident you feel when you are on a chair or you know, uh, standing right. on a ladder. Where just make it up number, right now sure. but, but uh, it's a test that uh, is a scale that gives us returns us a number at least and then you can compare that number with the actual falls with the actual motor abilities of the patient mm-hmm. and also with the actual executive functions of the patient so you know the cognitive part that you may understand you know knowing your your patients quite quite a bit
0: that's really interesting We'll talk about that more um, off camera. <laughs> I'll get information and I'll bring it to all my trainers who, uh, who watch this, because that sounds like an interesting assessment to add into some things we do to, uh, to help them better. That's our whole mission is to try to help them. Now, I'm going to go back for one minute. I don't know if you mind uh, answering this question here. When a, when a patient comes in to see you for, let's say, gate analysis or any other type of testing, um, where are they with their medications regarding timing of medications relative to their appointment? Yeah. Do you have recommendations? Do you like to see them in an on or in between on and off state or off state? Yeah, it looks like
1: you knew my next slide because oh, <laughs> really? it's, okay. not, it's not this one, but the next one. Okay, cool. um, uh, It's an important question. Um, uh, patients with Parkinson's, especially after many years, so when they're particularly at risk of falling, have uh, what we call motor fluctuations. So the medication works for quite some time, two hours, two hours now, three hours. And then the the effect wears off, meaning that the patient goes back to the off state. It's like medication is not working anymore because those taken before um, uh, lost um, its effect. So uh, going to your question, ideally the patient should be in the on condition all the time because our goal, if anything, is really to make sure that from a pharmacological standpoint, the patient is covered by the medication all day long because we don't want them to have the off period. Mm It's obvious, but during the off period, their increase, their fall, uh, the the, the risk for falls increases. Sure. Uh, So, the the first answer to your question would be, there is no point. They should be known because they should be known all the times. We won't be able to, we should not be able to see their off, because it means that their pharmacological treatment is not right. But on the other hand, especially if you want to assess the risk for falling, which is uh, relevant to your question, we probably need to assess them in the off-state. And there are studies showing that uh, if if you measure the the gait of the patient, the mobility of the patient when the patient is without medications, you're better uh, in predicting the risk of folding. And this is probably because these patients are having folds when they are in the off-state. But they don't realize, sometimes patients don't know whether they are on or off. And this happens uh, particularly after deep brain stimulation. Uh, which is another huge topic, but um, so it's probable then that if you measure their ability when they are not medicated, then you are more ecological, you're more close, to, you're closer to the, their daily life during those moments where there are at risk of falling because the medication is wearing right. off. So, but but most of the studies done so far are done with the patient on medications because okay. we say you know this is their normal situation. Okay. And actually, yeah, this is just an example of how bad we are in predicting falls. Now, now people are familiar with this graph. The closer you are to one up there, the better is the test. These are some tests done using, versus uh, A, B, C, the, co- the scales I mentioned before. Yep. Okay. Uh, or dual tasks. Dual tasks are not doing well because because patients with Parkinson's don't prioritize in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned before, uh, if the patient is doing a dual task, uh, we see a worsening of their gait. So now. People were saying, okay, let's do the test, asking them, like, like you do, to count backwards or to bring something. This is a motor dual task. And yet, when you look at this uh, in terms of uh, being a test to predict future fall, this is not working well. Why? Because there is always a little bit of recklessness that I was mentioning before. So the person do, can do the dual task, and instead of prioritizing the balance and the walking, prioritize carrying the tray or counting aloud. Mm-hmm. So you don't really see the reality. That, that's something that makes right, uh, uh, assessment of Parkinson's disease patients more difficult. Sure, yeah. And, and going to... Oh yeah, this is another uh, in, uh, video that shows the typical situation. The person is working quite well, but then tries to turn and a sudden block and the, f- the person no, fell. No so this is the challenge of turning and the freezing of gait that I was saying before. That's very typical of Parkinson's. And that's what you were saying before, the backwards fall. A bad strategy like walking backwards it, um, increases by far the risk of falling because there is no foot. Mechanically, right. the foot is, is on the other side, so yeah. you don't have any support. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is well known. It's known that uh, patients with Parkinson's have a natural tendency to fall backwards. We've said this already, but the stoop posture improves their condition. And, and, uh, and you don't see this when you ask them to walk backwards, but right. this is something that should not be done. Mm-hmm. And this is what I was saying before. The, the wrist fracture, some patients with Parkinson's, since they have a poor reaction time, they don't use their upper limb to protect themselves. So, so hard a, hard. an aging p- person that falls, because falls is common in aging, more commonly has a fracture of the wrist. person with Parkinson's more often has a fracture of the femur because right. of this reaction time and the poor ability of use the, the, the protective strategies. And now I want to go to where you were um, going before. Should we test them with medications or without medications? These are tests done with or without medication. This is without medication. And now, now everybody's familiar with this curves. And you see that when you test the patient without medication, the performance of the tests are better. And, and actually, there's a recent publication showing that when you combine an assessment in the off-medication using data analysis with dual task, you have a much better way to predict future falls. See, the, the test is almost perfect. Yeah. So this is, you know, I brought you slowly to this kind of situations. The more you use technology, in this case, gait analysis, mm-hmm. the more you are uh, close to the situations that brings to falls, in this case, off medication, the, the, the better you are uh, at predicting falls. So yeah. this is just to bring yeah. people slowly to where we are right now. Sure, yeah. Do you have any question about what this is? No, I actually, no, that's interesting. No, that's real interesting.
0: Okay. I'm fascinated by it. I've always wondered about the medication thing when they come to see you as a, um,
1: a neurologist Yeah, in your testing. Yeah. Well, we also do, and this is part of our assessment uh, of candidacy for this, uh, deep brain surgery, um, levodopa challenge. So levodopa challenge is source of many other information, uh, many other data that we can gather when we see the patients without medications and with medication thereafter. So we do ourselves a little bit of a challenge sometimes. Okay. And this is one of my last points uh, for today, uh, which is really getting more scientific now. Because uh, people know that uh, in Parkinson's there's a lack of dopamine. That's why they're taking medication They are promoting the effect of dopamine, like levodopa or dopamine agonist. Um, but we also know that there are other neurotransmitters that are impaired in Parkinson's, particularly Serotonin, I mentioned that before, but with respect to false memory, gait, uh, an important one is acetylcholine. Donepazil, the medication I mentioned earlier, is a medication that promotes the effect of acetylcholine. Uh, It's a cholinergic drug. And we can measure today the amount of cholinergic um, uh, content in the brain. This is a, a normal brain. And uh, as you see here, there's a lot of cholinergic activity in the basal ganglia. These are the part involved uh, in Parkinson's disease. Sure. Yeah. In the cortex, because we use it to measure memory, in the, the cerebellum, in the midbrain, these are the parts instead related to motor function, right. balance, gait, mm-hmm. and so forth, and even in the thalamus. And the thalamus is um, the quantity of acetyl- um, acetyl- cholinergic tracer, this is a PET study, that uh, is measured in the thalamus is, is a proxy of how much cholinergic um, neurons there are in these centers that are devoted to balance. This is because these this new neurons down there are projecting the, the cholinergic fibers up to the thalamus. So measuring how much thalamic activity you have, you know how much degeneration you have in the brainstem, basically. Wow. And, and now understanding this, you, you have situations like this, you have a normal scan, this is a study done uh, um, in the U.S. Um, uh, so this is cholinergic activity in the cortex, and then the thalamus and the, st- and the striatum, this normal situation. There are people in part- with Parkinson's with somehow normal cholinergic activity, but a reduction of the cholinergic activity in, in the brain stem or in the thalamus, and there are situations like this where there's no uh, good activity in the cortex, which usually happens when people have memory problems, hallucinations and also uh, no cholinergic or very poor cholinergic activity in the thalamus down here Mm -hmm. and and these are the people who fold so in theory uh see this is the link with attention cognition so we're putting things together now oops and and, uh, talking about folding Uh Uh, and um yeah and and so this has been studied and we know that the, the amount of cholinergic activity in the thalamus is uh, a way to know who are the fallers who are not. So maybe in the future, we'll be using this kind of technologies to understand who's at risk of falling. And we also know that clinically, there are features that telling us that this is happening. That this is g- the generation of the cholinergic system. And this is when the patient has folds, but we know why, we'll be talking a lot about this today. but also. Uh, uh, when would they have RBD? I don't know if you're familiar with RAIN behavioral disorder. Um, no, I'm no, not. Yeah, there's something that yeah. people probably uh, tell you is when they act their dream. They're uh, screaming and moving at night when they sleep and when they dream. So we have a, uh, a natural, uh, protective way to dream and without moving because we, you know, you may dream to, to walk, to run, and you don't want to do that. So actually during uh, our uh dreams which is the REM phase of the uh, of of the sleep you know REM is not just a band it's, it's actually uh, <laughs> and, and and actually they the, they the band took the name from that did uh, they really yeah i always wondered about that yeah, yeah. yeah. REM means ra- rapid eyes movement because when we are sleeping and dreaming we are moving our eyes quite fast and we're still uh, we're using our muscle uh, muscles to breathe because otherwise we we'll would be dying but the rest of the body is paralyzed mm-hmm. that's why sometimes you may even dream of being paralyzed because there is some consciousness coming back while you're still sleeping and dreaming. Okay. Um, so the rest of the body is paralyzed normally. In people with Parkinson's, when there's the generation of this cholinergic system, this protective mechanism is lost. So if you're dreaming of screaming or being chased by someone, you really scream, you act in your dream because you're not paralyzed anymore. So this is something that tells us the cholinergic system is impaired. Parkinson's and this is another key factor something to ask your, your patients yeah. because if they have this type of problems at night Which is quite common. They are they have an increased risk of falling once again Interesting because I know um, sleep dysfunction is
0: that's common. Yeah, uh, I have several uh, Parkinson's clients who uh, they don't sleep well at all and I'm, this obviously could be a contributing factor Yeah, What would you say is is there a Percentage of how much this normally contributes to
1: sleep dysfunction in Parkinson's? Yeah, that's a good question, and it's probably not a large contribution. Why? Because uh, this particular problem RBD. Because RBD, if anything, is a problem for the bad partner. Because actually, when you RBD, you are sleeping, you are dreaming, and patients okay. have no awareness. Right. They may have some awareness if the next day they find themselves you know, with some bruises or, or on the floor because it clearly means something, they, they, they moved somehow. Okay. Uh, but it can be quite dangerous sometimes for the bad partner because they may have too sure. much yeah. and uh, they can also get, yeah, they can get hit and, and, um, and they cannot sleep well. Uh, but in any case, the connection between sleep problems and falling is also quite relevant for many reasons. I mentioned that before, sometimes we prescribe medication to help sleep and these are increasing the risk factors, uh, the risk for falls, um, uh, but also because if you don't sleep well at night, and there are reasons for that, uh, the next day you are sleepy, you are not focused, and this happens to everybody, you know, when you, your balance is a bit worse when you haven't had good sleep the night before. Um, but then the question is why, why don't they sleep well at night, and, and this is because we mentioned the, the the need of dopamine that their brain has all day long and night time too. So they are, patients with are typically take medication during the day and at night the body needs dopamine, needs to move anyways and, and if they are not well medicated at night too uh, they, they cannot move well so they, they are uh, woken up by like this or they have rigidity, painful cramps that we call dystonia in their legs. Right. So the lack of dopamine impairs the sleep and impaired sleep makes the, them sleepy and then a risk of falling. RBD doesn't really come in the picture because of the sleepiness the next day. Okay. Right. okay, I think this was. Uh, this is my last slide. It's a very, very busy slide that basically summarizes all I said so far. We, we know that there are problems with aging. Vascular lesions, little strokes happening to your brain. You, you know, the brain doesn't really work too well at some point. You know, start declining. Uh. We say that aging starts at age 35, so we are, you know, already there. And and there is a gradual decline. So aging has to be taken into account. And aging on its own is a risk factor for so falls. Then there is the generation of dopamine, the dopaminergic centers, cholinergic centers, and you now know why. Uh, I I slowly brought you there, mm-hmm. and, and and this causes moderate, pro- moderate problems, freezing of gait, problems with balance, uh, problems turning, but also executive and attentive problems, being sure. focused. Right. And altogether this these, these, these factors lead to uh, this frequent falling situation that is still so hard for us to diagnose, predict, and treat. Okay, really interesting. Um, do you want to talk at all about uh, DBS? and for management? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah that's, uh, it's one of my uh, field of interest uh, because I, I, I do a lot of DBS I'm most of my job is basically with patients uh, having DBS and this is why I, I got interested in falls and gait um, for, for many reasons. Um, deep brain stimulation, which means having electrodes in the brain can cause falls, can impair the mobility of the patients because Uh, This is brain surgery. So if you do brain surgery in someone who is too fragile, that's why our job is to understand when the patient really needs something but is not that at risk to have a worsening because of brain procedure. So uh, I I was saying DBS can make the risk of falling worse and also gait worse. But also many people can live longer now, can have a, a reasonable good life for many years because of DBS. So while in the past we didn't see The natural history of the disease, because these people ended up on a wheelchair much earlier, or they died earlier. Mm -hmm. Now we can follow people for 30, 40 years after disease onset, and this is quite common. Then that they have falls at some point. So this is how DBS and falls become—they are connected. But then my challenge is trying to use DBS to help Mm falls, and DBS can be used to help falls in many reasons. First of all, if the patient is at risk of falling poor balance, probably DBS is not a good solution, or not all the DBS procedures have to be done. And so here I see myself as the one who says, no, you don't have to do DBS, because otherwise your risk of falls will be even higher after. Or you can use DBS to actually help the falls, And this can be done in different ways. First of all, using established targets uh, with specific type of programming. Today we know which are the programs and the type of parameters of stimulation that are better for folds uh, management. Or with experimental targets, um, inserting the electrodes in those cholinergic nuclei that was mentioned before in the brainstem, particularly the PPN. So DBS or the PPN, uh, uh, which is this very very small, uh, well small, it's a a complex nucleus in the brainstem, seems to be effective in in force reduction. But it's still an experimental procedure, so it's still difficult really to understand uh, who who is the right candidate, how to do it, how to make stimulation over there. So there's still a lot to do. But one thing that I want to emphasize, and this is not just because it's you asking this question, is the interaction between DBS and rehabilitation or physical exercise because a patient with Parkinson's with motor fluctuations, dyskinesias, a lot of motor problems having DBS usually has an improvement of fluctuations and dyskinesias a very, very good improvement but the example I always make is, is like having a new car. You have a new body and you don't know how to use it and actually if you look at the false rate there is a spike increase of falls right after DBS because they move better, but they move, move in a wrong way. Oh, they, okay. they, they walk more, thereby there's an increase of, uh, of, of the time that the patient is at risk of falling. Yeah. So where I see uh, physical exercise and rehab, well, I, I see it as an important uh, uh, treatment, uh, as important as medication, and all the other strategies I talked about today, at any point in, in patient's journey, but particularly right after DBS, because you need to learn how to drive your new car, your new body. Right. And, and, and this has to be particularly intensive, which makes sense. And, and this is what happens any time you have a joint replacement. You know, new hip, you do rehab. Right. And, and now, why don't we do that? And, and that's the, 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 the saddest part of my talk tonight, uh, because there is not enough knowledge at, 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 at the government level well, what we are now in, 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 we are not in the US we are in Canada so here uh, there is public health uh, but there is not enough funding for rehab uh, there is not enough understanding of how important rehab is um, unless uh, you want to pay yourself or you have an insurance paying for it mm-hmm. now probably this does really apply to the american system but this, this will apply to many other countries particularly in Europe uh, this is something that i feel particularly yeah, I think it's particularly interesting to me because I'm European, and uh, we have seen this the same problems in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, because all the regulatory bodies are not really paying enough attention to rehab and physical physical exercise, and they are not the only one to blame. To blame is also the medical community and the researchers because there's not enough research on rehab, physical exercise, and, and until, and obviously, regulatory bodies need to see the evidence before yeah. they can really provide uh, coverage for these services, and this is what we need to do now. Interesting. That's that's all that's really interesting, that whole
0: thing about uh, the spike and falls right after DBS. I didn't know that, That's but it makes total sense, you know. So learning to drive that new body, Yeah. so maybe this is something, uh, obviously, we could play a role in as, oh, yeah. as trainers. definitely this has been fantastic i'm glad you like I hope they liked it too <laughs> yeah I, I they know i geek out and i nerd out on all this stuff i love all the neural stuff and the brainy stuff and um sometimes i look back and i wish i went into neurology <laughs> then again <laughs> i just know. get to visit with a, a, a brilliant brilliant neurologist and just learn so much and then hope to take some of that and use it with clientele, teach at some of this. Some of this is going to go and get mentioned in the courses that I teach, just so they have a little better understanding oh, yeah. of. I'm glad I can help your course. I really appreciate that, yeah, because, um, you know, I think the, the awareness of falls is, that, that's really important. I think that's something I need to find a way to implement and then teach how to implement, just so we can make a bigger dent in uh, helping people out there. But thank you very, very much. It was my pleasure yeah so uh thank you for tuning in i I know the first time i saw dr fazano in portland and it just happened again so no i appreciate that so much thank you so much for watching everyone be sure to go to physiochains.com and stay tuned for more uh, more interviews coming up in the near future i hope you learned from this i know i sure did thanks again for watching okay